everybody. Uh, this is Rachel here from School Psych Podcast. We're excited to have you here at a special time, so a little bit earlier than normal, and we're hoping that you guys are still able to tune in and watch, and if not, then, you know, watch it a little bit later. But I'm um, hoping that everybody's doing good, and I know that still crazy, chaotic corona stuff going around. Um, I, myself, my school districts have just kind of extended the closure, and we're kind of in, in limbo, but I've been doing some virtual counseling and checking in with students, which has been fun, and, um, you know, virtual meetings and things. So luckily with the podcast here, we're, we're pretty comfortable with our virtual, you know, beaming into places and, and doing that. So that's been fun. But um, so really great uh, topic tonight that I think that ties in a little bit with, you know, what's going on today. And there's some implications there and whatnot. But I'm going to pass it over to Rebecca, who's going to tell you how you can uh, participate. So Rebecca. Hi, everybody. So if you're watching us live, you can log right into your Google or YouTube account and comment right alongside the video. And if you are um, watching or listening um, in another way, not live, please use the hashtag Psyched Podcast. And that can be on Twitter um, or on the two Facebook pages, School Psyched, your school psychologist and the school psych podcast page and on either of those two facebook pages you will notice the latest post um, has this really cool idea from andrew our producer who is uh, always behind the scenes trying to help us improve he thought that um well we have been discussing having show notes for our episodes and so um eric created and andrew created a discussion guide and we thought it could be a collaborative um process to creating really good show notes. So if you log into Facebook, click that link to the Google Doc, and as you're listening to the discussion, please add comments, bullet points, questions, but um, we're looking forward to having some really good show notes because we think this is a really important conversation and we're so excited to have our guests. So now I'm going to hand it off to Eric, who will then introduce Dr. Shit. Okay. Thank you, Rebecca. Well, hello, everybody. I'm Eric, school psychologist in Connecticut. And I have been invited to talk with Dr. Shedd. I've been carrying this book around, reading, um, sharing, encouraging other people to read and purchase and um, sharing with my team in my district and our podcast team and some grad students at UConn. And I'm really thrilled because I think she highlights so many important things that we as school psychologists um, may be able to help ameliorate and certainly help contribute to solutions for and things that we need to be aware of that perhaps we aren't. So I'm very excited that she was able to join us and I uh, would like to read from her bio, which you can find on the web and we'll share a link in the, um, in the show notes in the podcast. Uh, but here is Dr. Shedd. I'm reading from uh, the bio on the Heyman Center website, which we'll, we'll share the link for. Um, Dr. Carla Shedd is an Associate Professor of Urban Education and Sociology at CUNY, City University of New York Graduate Center. She received her PhD from Northwestern University and her AB in Economics and African American Studies from Smith College. Her research and teaching interests focus on crime and criminal justice, race and ethnicity, law and society, social inequality, and urban sociology. Dr. Shedd is passionate about illuminating the plight of urban adolescents who each day confront the paradoxes of a school system that can work to educate or criminalize them, a police department that can work to protect or harass them, and a justice system that can work to rehabilitate or damage them further. Dr. Shedd's first book, Unequal City, Race, Schools, and Perceptions of Injustice, focuses on the city of Chicago, 
Centrally, the book examines the two institutions that predominantly or uh, prominently shape the lives of urban youth, the public school system and the criminal justice system. It also highlights racially stratified, stratified social and physical terrain of that youth traverse between home and school. Dr. Shedd's exploration of the carceral continuum is extended in her new research, capturing and analyzing the myriad legal, extra legal attributes that impact juvenile justice, processing and dispositions in New York City. Dr. Shedd has been published in various academic journals and edited book volumes. She has also received numerous competitive fellowships and grants from the Russell, Russell Sage Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the National Consortium Violence Research, Columbia University, and Northwestern University. So for those who may not be familiar with Unequal City, this was our National Association of School Psychologists National Book Read this year. And I want to say kudos to Dr. Shedd for writing the book and to our association for um, seeking to impact issues of race and equality. And uh, Dr. Proctor is here. Uh, I love Dr. Proctor. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> to give a really brief summary, in Unequal City, Dr. Shedd examines the ways in which Chicago's most vulnerable residents navigate their neighborhoods, life opportunities, and encounters with the law through illuminating how schools have both reinforced or ameliorated the social inequalities that shape the world of students. So welcome, Dr. Shedd. We are grateful that you're here and so excited to talk with you. Um, Initially, I'm just wondering what led you to your interest in sociology in general, and then maybe more specifically in the areas of justice and education. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for this invitation. I want to especially thank Dr. Proctor, who introduced me to this amazing organization and to now have connections to school psychologists through um, being chosen as the inaugural book read. So I'm honored and I'm delighted to make the connection. Thank you. Um, for having me on. So the kind of genesis of the work came out of being in Chicago, going to graduate school in what is considered one of our nation's most prominent urban laboratories, but to not think of myself as some lab scientist, but as someone who had to learn the city all over again from the perspective of a grad student, even though I had family there and um, would actually do a kind of reverse visit to Chicago from Mississippi to stay with my aunts and cousins um, over the summers in that way. So I knew the city not as intimately um, as one might had they grown up there, but in learning the city as a graduate student and navigating the worlds, um, many different worlds of Chicago. I mean, this, this study kind of organically grew out of that experience and out of the methodological toolkit that I was building while a grad student. I was always interested in race. I was always interested in crime um, and ultimately interested in justice. And so those worlds came together when I was able to um, join a project where questions were put on this school survey around police contact and around perceptions of injustice because so often young people are having these experiences but they're not documented and they don't get a voice so this was as a grad student an amazing opportunity to sort of go into an element of the literature that wasn't so well explored but to actually do something that could have some real world impact. So it was an amazing um, opportunity to sort of luckily get the chance to work on that project, thanks to my advisors at Northwestern, 
And then to keep building and growing the project, um, as I was thinking about these 14-year-olds, 15-year-olds, 16-year-olds who had vastly different lives, depending on where they lived and where they went to school um, and what their life trajectories would potentially look like, dependent on those characteristics of race and place. So um, I wasn't um, trained as a sociologist um, in my undergraduate years, but this discipline for me was the perfect combination of both um, tools from econ that I could apply to real lives of the African Americans that I kind of centered in my study. So building on this kind of toolkit from my undergraduate years, I knew I would still study race, I would study inequality um, and think about crime, but in a way that would be different from understanding individual behavior, but to really put in focus the intersection of social institutions. I love that, it's fantastic. And I, I really like the concept of intersectionality and how you point out the intersection of race, place and opportunity. Um, I'm not sure if everybody's familiar with those concepts. Could you explain that a little bit? Yes. Yeah, so um, from the legal profession and legal scholarship of Kimberly Crenshaw and also Judy Scales Trent, um, both law professors who thought about the overlap of race and gender, but how the law always kept them separate um, until, until most recently in thinking about what was more dominant? What would you choose as your sort of cause as you're bringing something before court? And so in the sociological vein of this, I like to think about urban intersections and how worlds come together um, by virtue of connection to various social institutions. So young people are connected by their neighborhoods, they're connected by their schools, they're connected by the social um, organizations um, that they, go in and out of perhaps is, you know, um, various sort of community-based organizations, or we can think about courts in the courtrooms um, as another element of that. But I really wanted to kind of go to task against this predominance in sociology to say neighborhoods were more important than schools, or schools were more important than neighborhoods. And how I sort of grounded this research was to think about what it is about schools in particular that can move one outside of their neighborhood in a way that we hadn't seen before. Um, and, you know, Brown v. Board is the kind of opening testament of that, where segregation in schools was only sought through schools because you couldn't really change where people would live. And so understanding stratification and inequality and the way it is overlapping um, with the various worlds of young people, um, we have to sort of start there and not just try to put things in a rank hierarchy, but understand how they intersect and how race and identity and demeanor and appearance um, very much overlap with one's um, zip code, as well as the kind of larger macro um, conditions that we're subject to. Awesome. And I'm seeing from comments that um, June communique um, an article about social justice and intersectionality. So that'll be good to keep an eye. That's great. Um, I, I love the fact that you had such an incredible um, fertile city to study, you know, regarding these issues, really um, amazing. And, and I think probably as 
most school psychologists, you know, Chicago has um, a huge variety of people being a, a huge city. Um, and the schools were so vastly different, just a few miles from an, one another. And I, I think as school psychologists, some of us may not be aware of the vast inequities from, let's say, Harper High to Lincoln Park um, and just the short dis distance between them. Um, but you shine that light on that. And I think probably for some of us who may not be in environments that are so vastly different, we still need to see how we can generalize the information and apply the information to um, our smaller microcosms, I guess. And um, your book just shines a light on so much contrast between these schools. Can you tell us a little more about the landscape um, between the communities that you looked at? Yes. So, um, you know, I think the book is very specific, but it's also universal in a way that um, because of how much time elapsed from the beginning of the study to me doing, you know, the initial kind of quantitative analysis of the survey data and then being, you know, still curious about what this meant for young people and to want to talk to them and choosing the four different school locations to do interviews and ethnography um, was key because I knew those worlds perhaps overlap, but also had contrasts. And, you know, from the kind of clues in my quant work, I could say, oh, what's happening in these schools that are predominantly um, African-American and have a lower perception of injustice amongst the black students there in comparison to black students who are going to the, you know, integrated school that has 40% white kids and they have a higher perception of injustice. So answering these questions in a specific way, but also in a way that you can take to, you know, suburban schools and think about the context or rural schools for, um, for that matter. And understand the kind of template and what it means to think of homogeneity or heterogeneity and how it can operate in one's um, perspective, I think it's important and moves beyond your Chicago. And so um, taking that walk to school or that ride to school, I really wanted to put you in the mind of what sociologist Elijah Anderson did as he took us through Philadelphia and a walk down Germantown Avenue. Um, beyond that, to think about Du Bois and what he did as, you know, a founding father of sociology um, in studying the Philadelphia Negro in the 1890s. So that was really the kind of inspiration and mindset of how I wanted to show these these schools, but I didn't want a pseudonym. So because time had passed where none of the kids I interviewed would have still been in the same school, I really fought to reveal the names of the schools. So people could not just check my work, but also could really see that these are dynamic institutions that were still being impacted by the policies that were just being enacted when I began the study. So with Chicago public housing being demolished, um, those high rises going down with the school closure and the combinations of, you know, kids moving across neighborhoods into the same school to then thinking about um, what would happen to a school like Harper that had 2,500 kids when I started to then being slated for closure, um, you know, 
15 years later, it's, it's remarkable to see the arc, but also to kind of catch a snapshot at these various moments. So I really wanted to make it so it was specific and you knew the city I was talking about and you could go there, you could track it, but you also could generalize it to many other um, cities and communities where schools play such an important role in stratifying um, individual experiences. Yes, I loved um, a point that I saw in um, Eric so kindly collected a bunch of documents about your book talk and book discussions that, that um, people have been having. But uh, your point that students don't always have a voice. We don't hear often the students perspe perspective and um, understanding how students feel across these comparative um, schools of, 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 with different kinds of um, uh populations of, uh, and mixtures of students. And um, I think that's really powerful. And um, you talk about, you use the term safe passage. Um, and I wonder if you could, um, you know, I, that is such a powerful term when we think about like providing kids with, whether it's from their home to school or within the buildings and the walls and the hallways of a school, um, safe passage or to, to um, go from being a person in their family and in their neighborhood to being a student. How do you think about safe passage and what can you tell us about that concept? Thank you for that question. Um, so safe passage was one of the kind of tangible, you know, actually policy um, pieces of this work that relates to developmental psychology, it relates to sociology. So Chicago um, in the late 2000s and early 2010 started instituting a program of safe passage where they would put adults on the route to school um, in so-called dangerous neighborhoods where they would you know, hire people pretty much minimum wage and post them on corners and say, for these, you know, hours where young people are traveling, we want to post responsible adults. And, you know, that's emblematic of thinking about what we're asking for young people to do every day um, as they journey to school and to think about the larger context of crime um, in that you would say, I'm going to have an individual posted instead of thinking about the sort of structural solutions that would be necessary to perhaps combat the crime that you're assuming you're combating by that one individual per square mile or however you might deal with it. Um, so safe passage, I have a slide I use in presentations where, you know, the Chicago Police Department had safe passage. If you feel unsafe, you know, we call the police. And then if you ask kids about this and I ask, well, you know, would you call the police? And they say, no, I would never call the police. Like, what does that mean if the official policy um, is that one should assume they would call the police and they would feel safe? Um, and then to think about the developmental phase of this with, you know, ninth grade um, being the real moment of young people perhaps leaving home for school, traveling much farther in distance, and perhaps using multiple modes of transportation. And that's definitely true for here in New York City, where um, high school is open across the five boroughs to perhaps thinking about, you know, smaller cities maybe having three or four high schools where people, um, 
can move across them. So even in, in this idea of the passage, you know, through adolescence and the kind of roles of schools and playing that, I wanted to put all of those um, ideas together. And what you see is we can think about individual brokers toward giving kids safe passage and psychologists are, you know, brokers toward that and providing, you know, space for young people to talk to them or perhaps to help get help navigating um, these spaces of adolescence to then thinking about this in a micro um, or macro way, excuse me, um, where we understand it is our duty to get young people through this. And unfortunately, you know, between ninth and 10th grade, we would lose the largest amount of kids in public schools to drop out. Um, and they would move in, onto a totally different life trajectory. And so I was also thinking about that and focusing on ninth and 10th graders. I'm getting young people as they're poised um, right before these vast, perhaps divergences in their experiences and in their attachment to school are perhaps detachment from school. So it was a critical moment um, in prioritizing their experiences, but also thinking about what it means for the kind of culmination of, of um, urban intersections once again. I, I had a thought and it's connected and we might have to come back to it later because I might be jumping ahead in our, in our discussion, but um, I read this article about um, younger generations that um, suggested that the reason that Uber is so successful is because younger generations just don't have the same faith and trust in institutions um, that that we have. So that we may trust like the yellow cabs um, and the medallion and the, because just because generationally we, we have grew up with more faith in institutions. And it, it makes me think if that kind of thing is true and, and then disenfranchised youth youth probably have even less faith and trust in institutions is just is trust in in education and schools um, as institutions um, something that we can impact it and and if so like how, how where would we even begin so, I mean, trust is a huge, you know, empirical concept for sure, um, but it's also a social concept. And I'll connect it. One of the questions I saw come up was, um, you know, how do you define social justice? So I'll connect the two. So in, you know, the kind of survey data and the measures I had on social justice and criminal injustice was to think of justice um, being the lack of a gap between your expectations of achieving something and the kind of realities. And what I was testing was for gaps in justice, which would be injustice. So whether or not one perceives their race or their gender or their class to be a factor in achieving, um, you know, full justice. So with this, you know, in order to have trust in institutions, you would assume that they operate in a just manner. And that goes along with the literature on procedural justice that's come out through psychology. Tom Tyler, who's at Yale, has a kind of extensive literature that looks at this. To then also thinking about um, the sort of use of, of institutions. And we can have expectations that may be low expectations, but, um, we should have higher aspirations for these same institutions. So I would say, you know, even if, you know, kids who are black and brown who have a lower 
um, perception of, I mean, a higher perception of injustice and a lower level of trust in institutions, they still want to believe in those institutions because they're still using them. I mean, you will have kids who would say, who else am I going to call? You know, I don't want to have to call the police, but if we have someone burglarize our homes, who are we supposed to call? Even if the police, when they answer the call, might accuse us of um, having done it ourselves, you know? So they're really feeling constrained. And so the last element of this would be about choice and how we understand choice to operate, um, whether we're talking about the range of schools that one can go to or not. Um, so to have public, private schools, charter schools, parochial schools, um, the kind of taxi Uber example, there are people who right now you can pay to have an Uber if um, you know, you're able to, but if you can't, you have to use public transportation. You really don't have a wide open choice. So it's not like you're choosing those um, institutions, but you really um, can't do anything else. So I think choice is another factor that we'd have to understand as, as moderating the kind of impact of one's ability to sort of trust and one's ability to kind of believe in institutions. That's amazing. Wow, I, I, yeah, oh, go ahead, Rebecca. No, I did Oops, I was muted. I was just letting that, that soak in. That was a really powerful answer. Thank you. Yeah, I love that connection um, between trust, the institutions, and social justice. And I think um, bringing perhaps connecting that to what we do as school psychologists to welcome and hopefully, as you mentioned already, protect students and uh, provide um, safety and comfort as well as build positive climate in our schools and try to contribute to um, a climate of welcomeness, a climate of safety, a climate of um, all students being welcome and valued. And I think about the, the concept that you mentioned, um, safe passage. And, and it, it really struck me that, you know, some of these kids, and not just going through areas that may be dangerous or violent, but areas or neighborhoods where perhaps kids are supposed to be catching a bus and the people who are supposed to protect them are kicking them out of the neighborhood, police pushing them around. Um, uh, there was one story where the kids were beaten um, told to get out of the neighborhood and they're just trying to get to school. And it, it just, it's really, um, striking to, to read that and to know that these are people's experiences. And so you bring up the point about the carceral continuum and how in some of these situations, institutions that are meant to protect and serve and, and in some of the institutions do, and then in other institutions are meant to control and, um, and, push away, I guess, or segregate. And, and so I wonder if we um, could talk a little about the carceral continuum and, and some of your observations about that protecting in some instances and, and policing in others. Thank you. So, um, you know, as I was stepping back with the data, you know, still studying Chicago from New York City, and I would start every, you know, Monday morning opening the news and um, in the time in which I was writing this book, you know, it would always lead with the murders over the weekend and it would lead with how many Chicago public school students were killed. Um, and so all of this was 
a way of conditioning us to think about the kind of extreme circumstances of, of contact and of a carceral continuum. And then once the book came out, it was the same time as the um, girl was violently assaulted and then arrested in her South Carolina classroom, um, the assault at Spring Valley. Um, and, and there were so many people who had no idea that the police presence would be so strong in a school where it would escalate from a girl having her cell phone on a desk and perhaps being non-compliant about putting it away to having the school police officer come in and violently throw her across the room and arrest her. And so um, as I was thinking about extensions of this and with people focusing on, thanks to, you know, Michelle Alexander and her amazing book, Jim Crow, um, um, thinking about how people are now focused on mass incarceration or thinking about um, the school to prison pipeline, we actually don't have a lot of empirical data. And so um, we can know that there are people in jail who dropped out of school. We understand that, but we don't know the paths by which they got to jail or got to prison. And so I started to really center um, this, this theory of a carceral continuum that was put out by Foucault and then built up on theoretically by sociologist um, Loïc Pocant, who's at Berkeley. Um, but I wanted to study it empirically to think about the sort of paths by which one has um, great perhaps severity and great scrutiny as they move across different institutions to um, the end of you know, surveillance and punishment. And so this carceral continuum has been really um, focusing my research to understand these different paths. And so from looking at schools in Chicago where um, the Chicago Police Department had live stream of all the videos in the school, they were a presence there in greater numbers perhaps than school psychologists and school counselors. Um, they had a higher budget and to understand, okay, well, what do you do when you want to to look at the jails and the prisons and understand people's educational experiences? So the project that I began in New York um, after kind of wrapping up Unequal City was to look at the juvenile delinquency courts and to understand the paths through which young people move from their neighborhoods and their schools to end up in the courtroom to kind of fill in that empirical gap. And it's been illuminating from having a team of students sort of based in um, one borough, three different courtrooms to um, really tracking what those cases are and to seeing the patterns where the neighborhood you live in might be a reason for a judge to detain you before your um, your trial even goes in because they say, I don't wanna send you back to that neighborhood, you're just going to get arrested. And so does that say anything about the individual's, you know, kind of legal culpability or does it say more about the, ex the extent of policing that's present in their um, neighborhoods? And so it's also about having NYPD be a huge force um, in the school systems in New York City, bigger than the Boston police force itself. So having school-based fights that will then show up in a courtroom as you know, second degree assault um, and understanding the kind of movements of that. So it was really my curiosity around how does the social show up in legal 
domains and what do we do about it in terms of understanding more about punishment um, in a space that is supposed to be protective. If we think about family court and the kind of aims of family court and um, protecting young people from perhaps themselves and or society that has not protected them. So that was really the aim for moving from schools where police are present to then studying young people who show up in courts, perhaps because of um, something that happened in their schools and seeing these movements within, you know, across um, these different institutions. So that's what I'm aiming, you know, trying to write up now. Uh, policies have shifted again as I'm studying things. So um, the closed Rikers movement has hit um, in this moment of studying um, the court system here. Um, when I began the study, you were still a child at 15 and younger. Um, and now with the Raise the Age campaigns, you're now a child again at 17. So huge policy um, changes have happened that would focus now on what these courts will do with these young people because they have a greater reach and because even more attention is on them in this moment. That, that's great. And I think everyone's probably really curious yet yeah, to, to follow up and follow you and see how that plays out. So is that going to be another book that you're working on that'll come out? Awesome. When 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 might we expect that? <laughs> well, you know, with homeschooling and Zooming and all of that happening kind of changes your own um, writing schedule. But I'll say um, the kind of ongoing presence and um, changes, you know, is making it again a book that will take a longer view of punishment policy um, in this sort of aim to perhaps protect young people. And so, you know, what the COVID-19 crisis is even opening us up to is understanding the role of critical institutions, once again, of schools. And like, you know, I've asked the question, what happens to a neighborhood that doesn't have a school? And now we've had to shut schools down except for them offering essential, you know, food to young people. And now we're saying, oh, Food, um, food is the essential provision, perhaps not necessarily education um, in New York City schools. So this crisis is laying bare all of the kind of policy imperatives. And I think that's true for the courts where, you know, courts have been shut down. Um, and so what does it mean to not have these dockets be full when we could see, you know, 30 cases a day or perhaps even more come through to shut it all down and really get at the bare essentials of what safety um, and justice means. So this is a real moment of you know, greater clarity, I think, that we'll have to go into the analysis of what we do when an external kind of crisis really makes clear what, what our aims are. I think that's been on, you know, a lot of people's minds uh, recently because we worry about those students that are, you know, that are going to be hit hardest just because of, uh, you know, their circumstances and whatnot. And um, I think that, yeah, it might show us, you know, where some of these things are and point it out and maybe, you know, optimistically we can go in and, and make some adjustments and whatnot. But it's, it's hard to see it playing out, you know, when we know <laughs> that it's there. Yeah, and I think, too, it's, in, these in this time when the most vulnerable of us, then they also, these students in these districts are also um, become the most, have the highest rates of, uh, of this virus. We're, it's more easy to see how by not protecting these 
communities, we hurt ourselves. You know, it's we're all so connected in this. And so if you're if you're just looking at the spread of the virus, you know, it's we have to fix this. You know, the 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 inequity in the healthcare system and people getting um, proper medical care and evidence based medical treatment and access to um, to support. I think this pandemic highlights how if we can't fix some of that for people that maybe don't live in our neighborhoods, then we can't fix things for any of us. So this is one way to think about it. I think it really shines a light on the inequities as, as was mentioned, and maybe this is be a good place to talk about, um, how strongly this has inf- uh, has affected the African American community in particular, and um, people who are uh, also impoverished, um, and the higher rates of infection. I, I think maybe as a sociologist, it might be good um, to hear your perspective on that um, as well. Yeah. So. Um, you know, all the things, particularly in New York City, you know, people wanted to laud and applaud that it's a melting pot and that we have such great diversity and you still see the inequality and stratification hit us by race and class um, and and in place. So um, this really is the kind of illumination of all those vulnerabilities that could also, you know, be seen as some great strength and a more positive light. Um, In light of the kinds of vulnerabilities that African-Americans really have, I mean, I'm reading these same articles and trying to understand everything going from the blame that's laid on individuals in terms of obesity or perhaps one's behaviors and then thinking about the structures um, in which people live. And so, you know, public housing and, and thinking about, you know, what does it mean to get fresh air and to not be stressed in in the place where you live and to not have an outlet in terms of green space or somewhere to go. So all of these things are really colliding. Um, And it's, it's, it's quite distressing to me. And then reading the takes on it where you still see the blame um, on African Americans or on the individuals there, you know, it's an amazing piece written by um, scholar at Princeton, Kianga Yamada Taylor in The New Yorker, but it's titled The Black Plague. Of course, she didn't title it, but it would make you think um, this is something that is endemic to Black people instead of um, an expression of their greater vulnerability um, by virtue of historic oppression that has you know, continued through this day. So I really want us to focus on the larger kind of structural conditions that will make those of us, you know, more vulnerable by race, class, position. And that's what I hope the takes will be um, moving forward to not assign individual blame, but to think about the context that people have to navigate and have to deal with. Um, The other piece is the sort of true, um, you know, impact on black women as essential workers, as the sort of, you know, kind of locus of, these communities and even seeing, you know, the teachers in Brooklyn, you know, recent deaths. I mean, it's, 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 it's so distressing, but again, who is considered essential um, in all of these moments? And we have to kind of change um, our 
our way of thinking of these individuals as disposable, um, but to really truly value them as essential. And it will be um, the focus on the structural conditions like, you know, I see Dr. Proctor weighing in on that, um, that matters the most um, and, and really impacting individual kind of health outcomes. So, you know, this is a really scary moment for us all. And of course, as someone who thinks about the most vulnerable, um, if we're not able to protect them, and Rebecca, you said it well, I mean, we're all at risk if we don't do that. So that has to be the approach. We have to center the most marginal and the most vulnerable in our um, solutions and policies and not keep, you know, giving more advantage and reward to those of us who are the most privileged. Yeah, Rebecca and Eric and I have had conversations about the whole essential worker thing and how that I, it's it's hard to to wrap my head around sometimes because I come from a place where I, I'm able to like order grocery delivery if I want to do that. But then, you know, is, the, is that right to I'm almost like we're taking advantage of somebody who has to be out there, but then you're giving work. Like, so it's just this really kind of this yucky feeling almost um, for these essential workers have, have to be out there because, uh, you know, they, they're essential. And um, I, it's just so hard to kind of wrap my own head around that and to figure out, you know, how, how to help that situation. Um, and I saw an article too about Amazon that, you know, they're essential workers and uh, Amazon people are, are there, you know, fulfilling package orders. And a lot of people are ordering things that are not essential things that they need. And, you know, everybody's out there risking their lives to fulfill these orders for silly stuff. And so I think it's also, you know, something that we need to be aware of. I don't, I don't know the fix, but it, it, it just reminded me of that conversation that the three of us had. Yeah, it's some, some people really don't have the economic luxury to be able to shelter in place and, and how unfair that is, even if they're not, um, you know, essential workers, but they need to survive and have their family survive. So they need to find a way to, um, to earn money. Um, and it's just, it's so sad because they, their risk shoots up so much more than um, people who are, who are able to either work from home or um, just manage the the economic financial strain for now um, by staying home. Really. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. I I I love um, you know just my own school district and the district that my kids attend. We're at two uh, slightly uh, towns. Uh, but we have been vigilant on sure that our meal programs have continued and uh, making sure that everyone has a Chromebook. We're one-to-one -one with, with things like that, but making sure that people have internet access and, um, and just trying to reach out. We have an outreach program. If you haven't heard from your students, um, we're, you know, we're making sure that somebody is um, really trying hard to connect with those families they're little things and, and volunteering in the communities to make sure people have what they need, I, I think, and I hope that it will cause us to come together better um, as we're separate and socially distanced in some ways um, that it'll cause us to uh, reconnect and reprioritize people over things and um, money and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, I'm really, um 
you know, thinking again about the prospects, like you said, Eric, that we can use this moment to make connections. Um, you know, often if we are forced to think creatively um, about things, you know, will we bring in more punishment? I would hope not. So even if you say a school psychologist, you're supposed to, you know, connect and figure out why kids aren't showing up. It's not about, you know, getting them in trouble or having some mark on their record. It really is figuring out what their circumstances are and what the connections are. And it's been disheartening in some ways to see the kind of punishment approaches, even in New York City, where the mayor has said, you know, if we see people out and they're not being distant, we're going to call the NYPD in. And you're like, for what purpose? You know, you want to find them $1,000? That makes no sense. Why not give them masks? Why not think about, you know, the kind of ways we can teach around epidemiology in that way, um, instead of um, still using the kind of carceral solutions. And I hope the same will be true for school institutions as we get into this very, again, essential phase of um, pickup for food and check-ins with the communities that um, are most vulnerable that the people like you, school psychologists, can really use your powers um, in a way that is pro-social. Um, and that's one thing that I'm seeing even from the family court study, where we're still using the engine and the resources of these institutions um, in a not so pro-social manner. So you will have a prosecutor and a defense attorney agree to charge a kid with a more serious crime because that will allow them to get more psychological services instead of thinking, how can we provide those services outside of the court? Um, and so now this is a moment for me to see, wow, are kids getting more extensive services now because the court isn't seeing them on the docket right now? So this could be um, an opening for some of the things that I've been hoping for and asking for um, in my own work. And I hope it will, it will allow um, the school psychologists and other folks who work in education, um, teachers to use their most kind of generous approaches to um, making these connections too. Wow, I never uh, thought about that before. And that makes me think about as school psychologists, sometimes we end up qualifying children under special education in order to get them more services or the things that we need instead of, you know, if things were structured a little bit differently, you know, getting tier one and getting those services and supports ahead of time. So we don't maybe need to put a child in special education or, or use a label or things of that nature. But that, wow, okay. <laughs> I wonder, Dr. Stead, what do you think, what kinds of data collection right now will be really helpful for us changing systems and, and breaking down barriers after, as we get back um, to some kind of normal, when kids are coming back, um, what kind of information do you think we should be looking at and comparing uh, for students, for behavior, for their experiences over this um, shelter-in-place time and all of that? So I will say, you know, school psychologists have the, you know, unique position of being able to connect with young people and get the information right from them, you know, without the IRB hurdles that I would have to jump as a sociologist. So, you know, you're one-on-one -on -one thinking about, you know, what was it that 
helps you thrive? What could have been helpful? What will you need moving forward? So it's a remarkable remarkable moment um, for everyone in your position. And if we could shore up again, the essential services um, that we see are the kind of base of what needs to happen in this crisis. I think we build on that as we go back to whatever um, has to be a new version of normal, as we rebuild the curriculum, as we rebuild the kind of essential services that are provided um, within schools. We can do that in a way that doesn't have to go back to former methods that perhaps don't have as great impact. So, you know, talk to kids, ask them, what they think works and what doesn't work. Really, you know, be the nexus for the information that can come from communities back into um, school institutions. That's fantastic. And I, I do think, hopefully, I'm hopeful that this will give us cause to paradigm shift a little bit from um, punitive approaches, which I think have continued in our schools to uh, people mentioned restorative approaches, you know, approaches that build relationships and allow students to uh, learn and grow as we all make mistakes, as we all, uh, you know, we're teachers too. This is our opportunity to learn. And just like you said, why, weren't, why wouldn't we just give somebody a mask instead of arresting them or finding them or it just makes no sense. And, and at, at maybe a smaller level, we do things like that in schools. Well, I see a kid running or pushing or doing something silly, we're quick to, you know, scold and reprimand and write up um, rather than teach. And each of these are, are opportunities to teach and learn. And I love the Maya Angelou quote, when we know better, we do better. And this is an opportunity for us to, um, to do better. So I'm, I'm hoping this shines a better light on what we need to do. That's certainly true. I mean, I know New York is coming out of what should have been a spring break. And um, the chancellor and the mayor said, no, we're going to cancel spring break and we just want the kids to sign in and show up. And, you know, having that policy in the face of teachers saying we really need a pause to figure out what's going on and why are we doing the, you know, school through the break? It's so there's accountability so that, you know, young people just have to log into something. We're not thinking about the quality of what they're getting. Um, so that's, you know, already a turn that has to happen where we don't think do things just because we can, but we do them because they are helpful. Um, and I think school psychologists should have um, you know, the ear of all of these policymakers, as I hope sociologists would in sort of having um, various vantage points by which we understand the operation of systems and the implementation of policy. All right, I think we're gonna remind people we're looking for last kind of questions. If anybody has any further questions, um, well, you guys are maybe typing um, that out. Um, I just wanna remind people that our next podcast is going to be on 5.3. And we've got uh, Dr. Katie Duckweiler, who is going to talk about MTSS at the secondary level. We know that that's kind of the trickier uh, to, to navigate as far as RTIs and putting, you know, um, those supports in place with schedules and and things like that and credits and and that nature. So I think that'll be really good. But um, okay, looking. Do you see any questions, Rebecca? You're our our social media guru. I think we have one um, person who would just like a 
a solid definition of social justice. Okay. So, <laughs> just an easy one. I know that. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> so again, um, my my point is to think about how public institutions fulfill their mission to serve um, the people that they're in charge of, whether it's the government, um, the court systems, and the schools, which all have a mandate for education, a mandate for providing essential um, services. And the idea of justice is, again, the alignment of one's expectations you would have for an institution with the actual experiences or outcomes. And so that is you know, just the kind of definition I use. And injustice would be there being a gap between um, one's experiences and their expectations. So, you know, I think people use different definitions. Um, I know Cornell West likes to say, justice is what love looks like in public. I mean, we can have a lot of different um, definitional ways of understanding it, but um, the kinds of, of variables that come into it are about expectations, um, um, experiences and sort of outcomes that will help you understand justice. And I, as a scholar of, you know, justice, I want to think about it as procedural. I think about it, you know, so a process that one can go through. I think about it as empirical. You can capture the different elements of it and sort of systematize your understanding of it. Um, I think of it as an outcome. It should be something that you achieve. So there are many different approaches to understanding justice um, and injustice if it's the gap um, between your expectations and experiences. I, I know you touched on this and um, we've talked about it earlier in the discussion, but I do think that um, thinking about how um, systematic racism affects learning is so um, critical as well. And I wonder if you had any thoughts on how do we, how do we begin to um, level that playing field? So um, shout out to Nick Shannon. <laughs> I saw your note on Twitter. You got me excited uh, about for the podcast even more. So thank you for the question on systemic racism um, and what it means for learning dynamics, Nick. Um, you're right. I mean, there have been changes. I was sort of part of this beginning group around the sustaining, culturally sustaining um, and culturally relevant pedagogies in New York City to think about what are we teaching and who is seen and who is invisible and who is prioritized and knowing that it matters, not just the content of what you're teaching, um, but also the sort of purveyors and the mindset of how one is taught. And so systemic racism becoming the element that we understand um, you know, history and oppressions as well as justice and opportunity is so important. Um, so I have seen changes, I think, 
both at the classroom level for you know students that I have at CUNY who are also teachers that say, here's how I'm dealing with this curriculum we've been given um, and having people in my classroom be very critical about it and having those conversations to then thinking about it being a statewide policy by which we have a mandate for the curriculum um, to be reflective of the diversity of individuals. So it's going to have to be a multi-tiered approach to really um, move away from understanding individual behaviors and outcomes to understanding larger kind of societal structures and how um, racism, white supremacy, all of those things have undergirded the patterns that we've seen. So I think, you know, as individuals, it's kind of overwhelming to think about systemic racism and um, what it may mean. But if we take a moment to understand our biases, if we understand, again, like we don't just see um, people through the kind of prism of bad behavior or um, something that is deficient or faulty, but to understand, hey, what have they been dealing with? What is it that they have to encounter? And to understand it from that perspective, um, I think that's a better way to go. So thank you for the question. And we have to work on it individually, but also understand it's a social societal um, focus that's necessary. And I also wanna say hi to Natasha Barrett who went to boarding school with me a million years ago. I saw, I didn't know you're a psychologist, so we should connect. <laughs> That's awesome. We have so many friends out there. I, I just was great to see our Twitter world and Facebook world uh, names. And, um, it, you know, the, your comment really is just so empathic. And I think that, you know, understanding where people are coming from, right? We, we really need to draw from that level of empathy and be willing to listen and um, see the the pain that somebody's going through or the the disadvantage that somebody's going through and and your mention of you know we need to do this in a multi-tiered um, manner and and really as school psychologists so perhaps our takeaway um, we love Nick he's awesome um, our, our takeaway as school psychologists might be how can we do this across our, our tiers because we think about that um, frequently our, our three tiered triangle and how might we, impact our, our broader system, our town, our, our school district um, for equity and justice. And then how might we bring that to the smaller microcosm of our school and then individually to students and families. So um, perhaps our school psych team can start to think about that as we process the, the um, great information that you shared with us today. Thank you. I'm in awe of the work that all of you do um, because it's so necessary. And I would hope that, again, we get more funding um, for the services and more people um, to do this work because it's obvious that it's necessary before we get to the point of you know, young people showing up in the courtrooms. Um, so what I'm trying to do is put myself out of a job of studying you know, inequality and studying crime and studying, you know, sort of criminalization to then think of what are the opportunities for really investing in and building up on the potential of each, each individual within groups, within schools, within communities, um, so that we're not getting to that point. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. I think, let's see, I'm just looking for some last minute 
Um, but I think that everybody really enjoyed the conversation. And I know I certainly yeah. enjoyed it and learned a lot. And, it, you know, great job for um, NASP, too. And, um, you know, picking uh, picking this and, and have, shining kind of the spotlight on things. Um, so awesome. Thank yeah. you so much. Thank you so much. I'm so glad we're having this conversation and that NASP is having this conversation. And the more we can infuse this work and this social justice lens into everything that we do, I think the better we'll all be for it. So thank you so much. Thank you. We're grateful. Thank you. Yeah. Appreciate it. Bye, everybody. All right. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thank you.